Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 267. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 267 you're listening to. My guest today is Stefan Marsh, who is a mastering engineer who has been at it for over two decades. We recently met at NAM at the PMC booth, hanging out with uh, mutual friends. We just made a decision right then and there that he was going to be on the show because he's been at it for a while and he has some wisdom to share. So very much looking forward to the interview. Stefan Marsh here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's just keep it random. Nothing in particular, but uh, actually several things in particular. So I forgot to tell you all, I ran into Pete Weiss, former WCA guest Pete Weiss. And uh, you might remember Pete has a studio up in Vermont called Verdant Studios. That's V-E-R-D-A-N-T. And Pete has been actively trying to sell the property there, which is beautiful, up there in Vermont. So he's dropped the price. I think it's at 400000 at this point. I'll put a link in the show notes and you can check it out. But it's uh, rural Vermont. It's 40 acres. 40 acres and two buildings with over 5,000 square feet of space. And uh, he gave me a card here. What is your dream? A recording art studio, yoga retreat, dance, meditation, a wood or metal metal workshop, or live in one building and Airbnb the other. With this rural compound, you don't have to choose just one. Sellers, incur- sellers encourage serious offers. Recording equipment, not part of the sale, though some may be available separately. Yeah, so if you head on over to verdantstudio.com, you can get uh, all kinds of information on uh, Pete's place that's up for sale. What does he say here? Surrounded by an abundance of lush greenery. I'm going to just direct you to there and you uh, you can check it out. Verdantstudio.com. That's right. All right, what else? Some of you have uh, reached out to me and said, hey, what the hell, man? You list your uh, Reverb.com site, your Reverb.com seller site on uh, Working Class Audio. How come you don't have anything up there yet? Well... That's a good question, friends. And uh, truth is, I just got to get off my butt and get this stuff listed. So be patient. I will list some stuff. I'm staring at it right now. I've got uh, a 900 series rack from DBX with some uh, compressors. And uh, I've um, I've got a meter here that I need to get rid of. I got some mics. Yeah. I got some stuff. I got to list it, and I will. So have patience with me, and uh, be sure and bookmark uh, the link, I'll put it up there. I'll put it in the show notes, as I always do, so you can check it out. Got a book suggestion for you that has nothing to do with audio. It's a little bit of business. It's a little bit of um, life hacking. It's a little bit of a uh, little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know. And it's uh, by Timothy Ferris. It's not the four-hour work week, which many of you might be uh, familiar with. It's actually called Tools of Titans. The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers. 
basically a lot of entrepreneurs in here. And, you know, we as audio people are entrepreneurs. I I feel that. I don't know if you all would agree, but I, I think that that's the case. And I get a lot out of this book. I, um, I've made a, a pledge to myself that this year, instead of uh, each night sitting there with my phone scrolling through endless whatever, instead of staring at the phone, I'm going to stare at a book. And um, this has been sitting on my nightstand for a while. You know, you can read it straight through or you can just kind of flip around. There's some interesting interviews and the way uh, Tim Ferriss does this is some are a little bit longer than others and some are just short and sweet anecdotes and suggestions. And those suggestions could be, you know, favorite documentaries or favorite books or uh, software that some of these people use. Um, Anyways, it's kind of a smorgasbord of all kinds of stuff, and I think you might enjoy it. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Uh, That'll be an Amazon link. Yeah, it's an affiliate link, so if you buy something through that, uh, Working Class Audio does see a little bit of money. Very little, I assure you. But um, if you'd rather buy it from your local bookseller, I would encourage you to do that instead. Support your uh, small-town bookstore, go down, you know, and it may take a little longer. You can call them up, call them on the phone, and just say, hey, can you order me this book? And go down and buy it from them in person and support your local bookstore. Yeah. Tools of Titans by Timothy Ferris. Of course, I do continue to uh, listen to and buy vinyl. Uh, I am typically only buying uh, jazz records, instrumental jazz records that I really enjoy. And uh, one of the ones that I recently bought, I don't know if this is a reissue or not, but it's the Miles Davis and Bill Evans Complete Studio Recordings Master Takes. It's a two-record set, which, of course, is Miles Davis and Bill Evans. And it's got uh, on side, or the second record, side C and D, is essentially kind of blue from Miles Davis. And side A is various tunes, including On Green Dolphin Street, uh, Wild Man Blues, Round Midnight. I'll put a link in the show notes to that if you want to check that out. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, Miles Davis and Bill Evans, Complete Studio Recordings. Loving my turntable, I have to say. I was uh, planning on doing some uh, aesthetic upgrades to it. But quite honestly, I just, I kind of don't want to let it go. I don't want to, I don't want to pull it out of service and get it all, you know, cleaned up. It's it's a little rickety looking, but that's okay. Uh, it plays well, sounds great. And uh, yeah, man, I've just been listening to a lot of music, discovering a lot of music through uh, this oddball vinyl collection that I got from this guy in um, Walnut Creek or Concord, California. And uh, yeah, so it's pretty cool. But honestly, you know, no pressure. I know I talk about my turntable and it's great for me. It's not for everybody, right? It's one way to consume music. I also am uh, a subscriber to Amazon um, HD music where I listen in high res. And that's cool, but, you know, it's just great for me because it's a it's a way to just put on a record. And like in the case of the Bill Evans, Miles Davis record, I find that I just keep listening to you know, side A over and over and over again, and then I'll flip and go to side B over and over and over again. And it's just a different way to consume music that I happen to enjoy. I'm not going to try to sell you or wax poetic on how cool vinyl is and, you know, do the, oh, it sounds so much better than, you know, I'm not going to do that shit. So I just enjoy it. It's fun and it's a great time. So 
Hey, and uh, one final thought. I'm sitting here staring at a stack of business cards that I got from Nan. And I know that sometimes we think that we're so 21st century that we don't need uh, business cards. But I got to tell you, I burnt through so many business cards at NAM. It was crazy. I ran out the first day. I was like, oh, I don't need that many. Nobody's going to ask me for a card. But believe it or not, uh, people do. And I've got a stack of cards from people I met. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a nice reminder uh, when you get home from NAM. Not only uh, people you want to follow up with, but just a reminder of, oh, yeah, that's right. I met that person and I forgot about that conversation that occurred, you know, like several days ago. It's a great, great thing to do, I think. And it works for me. Once again, something that works for me. I'm not, not trying to strong arm you here into going to buy, getting yourself some business cards. But, but, you know, it worked. And I had a lot of people follow up with me after NAM. And that's really what it's about, right? Connections, network, growing the network, and uh, getting people to follow up with you and wrap up whatever it is you were working on with them. So uh, business cards, yeah. Think about it. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. 
I've been there. And when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. I'll quit screwing around. Let's have a great conversation here with Mr. Stefan Marsh here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Steph, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on. Thanks. It's great to be here. How long have you been a mastering engineer? This will be my 25th year, wow. which sounds crazy to say, but yeah, 25, a quarter century, as it were. Where did you start at? I started off at Sony. I came out to LA, honestly, from New York, where I grew up almost on a whim, or for, I guess, less than a whim, lack of nothing better to do. And that's what you do. And I answered a bullet more post and the woman who answered the phone said, I don't know who you are or why you called me. I don't know the school that you're talking about because where I'd find the bulletin board to find this phone number, but I needed a job. So she's like, well, I like your phone voice. So why don't you come down? And that was really my first chance to go and experience like what a real studio was like. I think I'd had ideas. I spent my childhood, like a lot of people in my generation, like digging through my parents' records, leaned up against the big floor standing speakers and reading through album credits. And I kept seeing the same names over and over and over and over again. So my dad listened to a lot of like Linda Ronstadt, a lot of California cowboy stuff. Some of the classic recordings still to this day were done in that time and of that era. And it was like a masterclass and it got me interested in it. So I really wanted to know like what a studio was about and what the people that worked there were like. And I wanted to see beyond just the pictures of backstage or whatever. So I answered a bullet more post and went down. I had a good interview with a woman named Nancy who I met there. And she was, she was really helpful. I was 19. I hadn't worked in a studio before ever. I had always been like the guy in the band who ran the PA. And in high school, I was on like the tech crew. So we did sound and lights and things like for productions. But for the most part, I had never been in that environment. I didn't even really know how to speak the language. So getting in there was a real sort of education. So I began, that was Sony Music Studios and that was in Santa Monica. And they had a facility back then that was about 6,000 square feet, which encompassed like every element of production in that time. So there was a recording studio with a mixing environment. There was a mastering room. There was a cassette duplication room. And later on, a CD duplication room. There were avid video editing suites. And there was sort of one of everything. So I got to experience all these different pursuits within the field of engineering audio and video. And mastering was what kind of fit for me. And it was where the first opportunity opened up. And I just kind of fell into it. And I realized pretty quickly once I did that the way that I hear music lent itself really well to mastering. And what I mean by that is I, I consider sort of two basic forms between mixing or recording and mastering of listening, meaning when you're recording and mixing, because you have discrete control over all the individual elements, you're inherently listening from the inside out to create the whole. And when you're mastering, it's much more about taking a step back from the whole and then you may dive in and focus on individual elements, but it's much more outside in listening. And we're not using level and panning placement to really set the adjustments we want to make or to, to frame things out. We're using EQ and compression and, and audio tools to manipulate audio in ways that will reveal or, or allow things to bloom and, and, and come out. And that was the type of listening that I had done. And that was the type of listening that intrigued me. And I wanted to hone that critical listening ability and and I had a great environment there at Sony to do it in, million dollar studio and all the best of everything and great, great teachers, most of all great teachers. Tell me about the the moment that you came to the realization that mastering was the way 
the path for you? Wow, I never, I never, I don't know that I've ever thought about that. I think it happened fairly quickly because I got into mastering pretty quickly. I started off as an unpaid runner, and after about a month or two, I, I literally was broke, and I went into the studio manager's office and I was like, you know, I'm. This has been fun, and I'm learning a lot, but I, I think I got to go get a job at the Taco Bell again because I'm crashing on my friend's couch at the moment, and I can't do that forever. It didn't seem like a life plan. So she said, okay, we'll hire you. And maybe a month or two later, they let go of the guy that ran the master room at night. Back then, most master rooms were so busy, you'd run two, maybe even three shifts. Once the actual EQ work was done, the process of creating all the individual, at that time in the 90s, it was 1630 tapes. So you've got your digital masters are, are stored on three quarter inch digital umatic cassette. And every country that manufactures a product for you is going to have to receive one of these cassettes. So Bernie Grumman would do an album master and it would come into this master room at Sony. And then a guy like me would come in at night. And for 16 straight hours, I would listen to the new Gloria Estefan record again and again and again, making all these one-to-one digital clones, as we called them, or exact digital copies. And it taught you what good records sounded like. There is a certain quality that good, well-mastered, well-recorded, well-engineered records have that is somewhat inexplicable because it encompasses, I think, so many different things. But when you know it and have the ability to recognize it, it's very obvious. And I began to see that as I was listening to projects that came out of all the top mastering houses from New York to LA and Nashville as well. And it gave me a reverence for certain engineers and a disreverence for other engineers, and I won't name names. But <laughs> I'm happy to say that after 25 years, some of them have become friends and have become allies to my search and my journey and my of discovery and finding new ways to do this job that I've been doing for 25 years and still learning. We had a conversation with a client yesterday. We were doing a 22-song a album for a client. And I'll admit, we don't do 22-song albums for people all that often anymore. But when we do... With the right artist, it can be a real journey Mm. and it's fun and you discover new things as you go because while you may have some familiarity with the concepts that they're talking about or the instruments that they're dealing with, they may have used them in a unique way. They may have used a recording studio in a unique way. They may have not used a recording studio at all more than often these days. And that creates a new type of, of music and a new type of sound. And we always learn from things like that. So anyway, to get back to your initial question before I drag it too far off the path, I think pretty quickly, within three or four months, they came to me and said, hey, sort of the, the proverbial, hey, kid, do you want a job from the mastering room? They needed a nighttime mastering guy, and they thought I would suit. I got along well with the fellow that was the principal in this studio. was an engineer named David Mitson from Birmingham and had a very patient, relaxed, egoless approach to teaching me how to master records. It was very matter-of-fact in that it was like, I'll teach you how the gear works and how it all goes together and some of the general concepts, but then you have to go do what you do. And he allowed me to develop as my own engineer as opposed to sort of a clone of him. And that really gave me a a career that has still lasted and endured. I think because of that, because I was able to just be myself behind the console with a good backdrop of knowledge and understanding. And now as I've gotten into cutting in the last few years, disc cutting, I've taken the same approach and used those relationships to draw knowledge from places that it's very deep and very dark, but it's there. And there's a lot of people that have been very helpful and taught me. And it's been a great experience all through the process of just continuing to evolve. And that's that's what I enjoy. At that time, was David your primary mentor or were there others that you looked towards? David was my primary mentor. 
I did have, uh, there was a couple other engineers there at Sony. Pete Barker was the, was the head tech and he ran all the studios there. And I learned a great deal from, from Peter as well. Because Peter had an understanding, not just of engineering, recording, mixing, tracking. He was also a musician and he was also a guy that could break a piece of equipment down and figure out what was wrong with it, repair it and get it back in session. He was the guy that when you had downtime in your session, you wanted to see Pete walk through the door. Mm. And uh, I learned a great deal from him. You know, there's some guys where you're like, all right, everything's going to be okay. It's the Godfather's here. When that happened, that was great. And I, I learned a lot from him as well. And Vlado, you know, my counterpart in New York was Vlado Meller. And I still, I think I talked to Vlado two weeks ago. I still stay in pretty tight, tight contact with him. And he's been a strong mentor for me over the years as well. Because he understands the New York market in a way that I don't. And it's a very, very different than LA. And things work differently in LA. Tell me about the method or the process or the the outlook that you had when it came to moving up from being just copying things for people. How did you make your way up through through the chain there? I really relied on the support that I had. And I have to confess, in many cases, the, some of the first gigs that I got were simply because it was bravado. You know, I had a great studio and I had Sony Music Studios on my business card. And I worked that till until I actually knew what the hell I was doing. Because at first you don't. I mean, it's trial by fire and you figure it out. You sit in and assist some sessions and you see how it's done. But until you're actually in the chair and somebody throws a curveball your way and you're able to crack it back, you don't really know. And so it's definitely, I mean, I think the joke is fake it till you make it. But what I did was I was able to fake it really well because I had a legit room and I had legit mentors that I knew if I didn't actually know the answer to something, knowledge was a phone call away, knowledge was a question or an ask, uh, an ask away. And I use that to my advantage. If you're coming up and you have access to people that know stuff, pry it out of them. Just beat it out of them. Not physically, but just pry it out of them some way because it's in there and there's no way you can learn it all yourself. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the, the phrase that you have to learn from the mistakes of others because you can't possibly live long enough to make them all yourself. And it's, <laughs> I mean, in audio, there's so few things that are wrong and right, but there's a lot of things that are better and worse. And understanding what is and what isn't, it's hard. It's, I participate in Facebook groups and things for mastery engineers, and you'll see a lot of younger people coming up. And they're asking questions that I think are really well-intentioned, but misdirected in a large sense of, hey, I want to get into mastering. What gear do I buy? Mm. It's like sort of like, that's where you end. You end with buying the gear to actually do it. Like there's a whole series of questions that need to be asked first. Like, how do you hear music? What is it about the way you hear music or the way you interpret music that you think might lend itself to helping other people realize their vision? Because that's really what mastering is. It's I say it's putting the frame on the picture. So you're not making the painting. You don't have the right to say, hey, change this color or use a different brush. It's about finding what the artist has done and embracing that. Granted, if they've if there's a technical issue, there's issues where there, there may be technical problems with a mix or with a song or recording. And we'll address those on a technical level. But for the most part, it's a creative process. And it's just about making sure that the story the artist was trying to tell initially gets translated through to the audience. And whatever I have to do to make sure that happens is what I have to do. Do you find it difficult to separate your own opinions about... For example, I watched a video of you and, and you talked about the loudness wars and all that business. You said, you know, artists have consciously made a decision to make records loud because they wanted to. And at this point, it's a way to do things, in your opinion. And I tend to agree with you. At this point, it's something that happens all the time. But the question is, is what do you do when you disagree with the methodology that they're using? Do you just have to take a more objective approach, the 30,000 foot view and go, they're the artist, once again, as you said, I'm just here to frame it. Yeah. 
Uh, the piece of advice that rings true with me and has over the years, you know, I find that when you do attended sessions, the amount of knowledge and little nuggets of wisdom that I've gained just by sharing air with some of the brilliant people in our business, it's invaluable. I could never, anyway, tangentially speaking, but one of the things that I've carried with me that was imparted to me by a client was that unless you're absolutely positively convinced that the artist is just off their rocker nuts, go with it because they're the artist. There's something inherent, you know, I've always said that artists don't create out of desire, they create out of compulsion. It's something inside them that drives them to do it. There's a story they have to tell, there's an emotion they have to convey, there's something they need to put out into the world, and it takes a unique kind of person to want to do that, A, and then B, say, I'm going to put it down for the history books and mark it in stone, and then after that, I'm going to go out on stage and travel the world and bear my soul for the world because it's so important that I get this message across or that I tell this story to my journey as a person and to my story in my life. And that's a unique and special thing that has to be cared for and nurtured and protected. And that's my job. My job isn't to judge that or my job is merely to inform that and then see how that happens, see how that comes back. In terms of the level wars, if part of the genre is, if it's embedded within the genre that you've got level that loudness and a sort of aggressive processing is part of the sound of that genre, then I'm cool with that. But it's not always been my forte. And if I've got a situation where where my vision doesn't totally line up with the artist on that, we have a conversation about it. Mm. I mean, part of my job is absolutely to be able to shift my point of view and line up with my clients. So if they're saying it needs to be more this or more that, then I need to get to a space where I agree with them so that I can make the decisions that they would make if they understood the equipment that I'm using technically to accomplish what they'd like to do. I want to basically make the moves that they would make if they knew how to do my job, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's it's a conversation. And I think a good engineer will be able to navigate that effectively. I mean, we work on a lot of different genres. I won't lie and say that everything that I work on is my cup of tea, but a lot of things are. And good recordings, I think, are universal. And I think the more time I spend on the planet and the more engineers I talk to about just the craft of engineering and capturing things that are real and sound like people making music together. That There's something about that that's just, it's magic. It's two plus two plus two equals 19. <laughs> it's that fuzzy math that happens when you get artists together and you have to like let them go. Even if your opinion is a little bit different, you kind of got to go with it hmm. and give them a little bit of rope. And if they hang themselves, well, they chose to hang themselves. But another piece of wisdom I was given by an artist along the way was, you know, I don't mind investing some time and energy and money, studio time, into trying something that I find out I absolutely don't like because it means I'm trying to figure something out. And if I'm trying to figure something out, there may be a million possibilities. But at the end of the day, reality, there might only be two or three that are really plausible. And sometimes you only need to get rid of one or two of them before the obvious one comes to light. And I think that happens a lot of times where if I don't necessarily line up with an artist, I go with it. I'll try a couple things. And sometimes I find out, man, I was, I was wrong. Sometimes I find out I was right. I won't lie. Sometimes the artist is crazy and it's what the idea they came up with and they will freely admit it themselves. Like, you know what? It's not working. Let's try something different. Hmm. But it's all about the communication. I mean, every, I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard this a million times from other engineers, but good communication is just every bit as important as the musical communication that happens through the recording and the mixing and the song. It's, being able to talk and understand each other on that on that creative level so that when somebody says something euphemistically, I can translate into keystrokes or knob turns or whatever to get them what they're looking for. How long did you stay at Sony? Just about seven years. What was the 
exit process like? What were the uh, the circumstances that surrounded that, and where did you go to next? 9-11 kind of did us in. I was there, I started in the mid-90s, and I left at the very end of 2001. After 9-11 hit, there was a lot of uncertainty, and nobody would go back and look at this one because it's too long, but one thing I noticed, you know, when you're mastering, you're always looking for patterns, and I always joke that we're just like Mastering engineers are like good human pattern recognition filters. We're just looking for commonalities, looking for themes, looking for patterns that we can grab onto and then expound. And one of the patterns that I noticed after 9-11 was that all of the advertisements, all the commercial advertisements on television and radio at the time, basically stagnated for about a year and a half. It just, they shut down production. Nobody knew which way the wind was going to blow. So nobody really wanted to invest a lot of money in production. And no one knew what was going on with New York and cleanup efforts. And it, that's completely ignoring that the nation as a whole was grieving and trying to heal. Mm -hmm. And there also were sort of seismic shifts in the industry taking place at that time. I think the biggest shift that happened at the end of the 90s and the 2000s was you no longer really needed a studio to create music and to produce content. Content was a new thing we were calling it. You, the artists became untethered to that. And the people who controlled the means of production prior to about 2000, 2001, controlled the flow of money within the business. If you had a big studio, that's where the money was going to come through. So because that's where the big artists were going to record. All the rentals were going to come through there. All the, So the recording industry, all the money was going through that means. And then it became untethered to that. And all of a sudden, art labels wanted to make direct deals. Like, hey, you, producer XYZ, we want to contact you, one fee, whatever you need. If you need a studio, if you need a drummer, if you need a Pro Tools guy, go get them. It's all coming out of your budget. And the all-in deal sort of became the standard. And no longer did you need to be anchored to a big facility. And in 2001, that was really becoming apparent. And I think Sony was looking to loosen its load a little bit. So they closed the studio. And myself and a couple other engineers that worked there, Pete Barker among them, purchased the assets. We formed a new company called Threshold, purchased the assets. And we basically moved it down the street, quite literally, and set up shop again. And I operated there with them for about five years. And we had a mastering room. We had a recording studio. We had a big Neve 8078 console mixing studio. We had a host of Avid rooms, DSHD. We had online suites. We had motion graphics in-house. We had duplication. We had It was a fully integrated 12,000 square foot facility that covered all, kind of all the recording and all the post elements, audio and video. And I co-operated that with them for about five years. And then the mastering business just became too cumbersome, frankly. I needed to split it out and just focus on that. Being one division within an 11 division company was just too much. And I needed to really focus on mastering. So I split out of there in 2006, 2007 and opened Marsh Mastering. And I've been in a number of studios since then. That whole business of acquiring the assets of Sony and, and jumping in a new pool with a group of people, was that scary at all? financially speaking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was weird. I was too young. I think I was 26 or 27 when it happened. I got I started mastering at 19. So I was honest, honestly too young to realize how scared I should have been. <laughs> and that's just me being honest with myself. But also the two, the two partners that I had, Pete was so knowledgeable. I had confidence in Pete and his ability to make things work. And our other partner had some good financial backing. So we kind of had the bases covered. We had good people and we had a deep enough pockets to be able to make it happen. And it worked pretty well for a few years. And the company's still around. They still do a lot of the same things. I think the recording studios have changed a little bit, but almost every recording studio in Los Angeles has changed a little bit in the last 15 years. Are you still a partner there or did you just get out? No. Okay. I'm just, I'm, uh, I sold my interest back to my other two partners. Do you think that, I'm just trying to kind of get in your head a little bit at that time. 
Do you think that that was a decision made out of convenience uh, because those are the people closest to you, the people that you trusted, and you thought, well, shit, I'll just go down this road because it's here and it seems secure rather than charting your own path? Very astute. Yes, it, it was. It was what I call the path of least resistance. It was an opportunity to all of a sudden after seven years, and keep in mind when you're at Sony, there were people that had worked there 30 years when I was there, 35 years in some cases. So, and I mean, Sony and prior to that CBS records, but people that have been there for a long time, some of them are still there. You think in terms of, I could be here 20, 25 years. I could retire from this company. It's a, that kind of a thing. And when your world gets flipped upside down, you're kind of like, well, what do I do? And I was given the opportunity to continue to work on my, basically my same gear in my same room. Cause we actually operated out of the Sony building for a couple months as threshold. And it was the easiest way to just keep going. And I was building clients. I was really on the uptick on my career at the point. And clients weren't going to wait for me for three months to build a new room. Like I had work and it's when they call, I was taught that you just never say no. You say, you find some way to say yes to what they need. So it allowed me to do that. In retrospect, I probably should have gone, taken a step back and talked to a bank and said, hey, let's put something together. And that's actually what I wound up doing in 2007 was when I finally was like, you know what, this is good, but the business is continuing to change. And I'm not so sure I want to be in the business of having a dozen Avid rooms and a large format analog recording console studio to try to book. And all these things were going private at the time. And in 2007, 2008, 2009, like right when Red Bull started putting recording studios around and all of a sudden we were competing with, it used to be when we competed with free as a recording studio, we were competing with a guy on a laptop. Now we were competing with a guy with an SSL, <laughs> but it was free because they weren't in the business of being a recording studio. They were in the business of enabling artists and, and harnessing that content and marketing that in different ways. So the model was changing so dramatically from this sort of standard state. No, we make recordings, we release them in this fashion to this audience and we monetize it this way was getting blown up. And I wanted to be more nimble. And throughout that, I noticed the way mastering worked where you hired an engineer and whatever they felt like they needed in equipment or computing power or processing power, they just had, and you trusted them to have what they needed. That was how the model was turning for mixing engineers and producers and recording engineers. So the model for mastering always worked. And we used to say, like, when you sold a recording studio, you used to sell a big picture of the console and the fancy room. But when you sold a mastering room, you sold a picture of the engineer because it was about their experience and it was about their credits and their objective point of view brought to bear on your project. And so mm -hmm. it, it continued to work. So breaking that, that sort of personal sales model out of the facility sales model was successful for me and businesses continued to grow. What about the, the process of getting out of that? And what was your vision for setting up Marsh Mastering? And what was, what was the game plan there? At that time, things were a little fluid. And I really just wanted to be able to serve my clients' needs in the way that I'd always come accustomed. Things were shifting at the company and they were trying to, in earnest, to their credit, they were trying to make things flow a little smoother. Like I said, it was a large business with a lot of different divisions and trying to get them all to feed synergistically into another, each other was a, always a challenge. But it was the strength of the facility as well. And we were always trying to work that. And they had brought in some new layers of management and the working arrangement they had worked out just wasn't, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. I felt it would negatively impact my ability to serve my clients' needs. And so it seemed like the right time to move on. And 
if I'm honest, it wasn't necessarily amicable in the moment. Mm -hmm. It has become so as, you know, hindsight and cooler minds prevail and, and maturity sets in. And I'm now, I have a pretty good relationship with those guys at this point, which I'm, I'm very happy with. It just wasn't, it was the right time. It was the right time for me to be out on my own. Again, I should have probably been more scared, but I felt I had confidence in my clients. And I knew when I was going around to look at different places to lease, different studios to lease, I was taking my invoicing around. And when they'd be like, well, you're a new company, you have no track record, you don't even have a bank account. Like, how do I know I'm going to pay you? And I've just thunked down a phone book worth of the last year's billing and all one by one printed invoices. And they'd go, oh, okay. And that sort of gave me the confidence like, yeah, I do this. This is what I do for a living. I've been doing it about, I think I've been doing it 13, 12 or 13 years at that time. I had a good track record. I had real credits. I had some things that had been awarded and I had a real good idea. I'm still learning, but I had a real good idea how to do the job. And I just rode that confidence. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for anybody in this business. I mean, if I can impart one piece of knowledge to people that are going and working independently now, it would be understand what your value is in the situation and then charge accordingly. And when I say value, I don't mean your price or your cost. I mean your value. What do you represent in value terms to your client? How much are they getting out of you, as it were, and charge appropriately? If what you're getting them is an amazing product, if you're turning goat piss into gasoline, charge accordingly. It's one of the big, everybody comes up in the business, they have their starter rate and their teaser rate, and they're never able to get out of that out of that cycle of, well, I can't raise my rates because if I raise my rates, then I'll lose my clients. And if I lose my clients, then I can't raise my rates. And no, if you're worth more, charge more, they will pay you. Sorry, that's sorry. I didn't mean to go off on a tangent there, <laughs> but it's one of those things that continually... I'll hear, I'll talk to young engineers and they'll be like, yeah, I'm trying to do this. And I just, man, I'd love to get this piece of gear or that thing, or I'd love to move into a better room or I'd love to upgrade my acoustics, but I just, the money and da, 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 da. It's the same way that you have to invest in yourself and you have to put yourself out there and say, at some point, I'm going to do this for real. And because I'm going to take it seriously, I will be taken seriously. That actually works. That is true. And if you're good, then the, the work will come and it will continue to come. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. I want to go back to something you said. The act of taking the invoices as kind of proof of I'm good for this. Did that come out of getting rejected a couple times? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, because when you start a new business, I mean, everybody, and justifiably so, everything is a negotiation, especially if you're talking about, you know, leasing agents. And they're looking for any edges they can possibly get. So if that edge is you're a brand new business with absolutely, you don't have a credit report, you don't have a track record, and they make you personally guarantee everything anyway. So having any of that stuff. So yeah, it was one of those things where I was like, I'm not going to get turned down. I know that I know what I'm doing and I know I can do this and I know I can be successful at it. And I know I'm not going to stiff anybody on the rent, but it's only proper that they would challenge that and try to seek an advantage from it. So, but yeah, that was where that stemmed from. I'd love to see the reaction of the person that you did that to first and have them yeah. go. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well, it was funny because I absolutely remember it. I was looking at a second story. I was going to be above a subway and it was not the most advantageous building. It was what they call a skillet building. So everything was kind of on sprung floors, 
metal framework and then everything else was wood. So it just really wasn't advantageous for big, heavy equipment and bottom end. And I like to be on a slab if at all possible. Yeah. Or at least concrete if it's in a high rise. But I mean, I've been in a lot of studios, so I'm kind of aware of what works and what doesn't work for me. I was insulted. I won't, I won't lie. I was just honestly insulted. I'm like, this building is a piece of garbage and it totally won't work. And like singing for my supper to try to get in here. And like I said, I should have been more afraid. I should have been more smart about my thing was like, well, if I just, if I have a place, someplace to land and I have the gear to do my job, then the clients are there. So it'll all work out. And that's what eventually happened. I wound up finding a studio in the old radio recorders building on Santa Monica Boulevard, which was like steeped in history. I mean, it's the studio where they recorded, Elvis recorded Jailhouse Rock and Bing Crosby recorded White Christmas. Wow. It had fallen into a sort of a state of semi-disrepair and which meant I was able to get into a studio and change the locks on the door real quick and claim it for my own. And I worked out of there for about a year and a half with some other pretty cool people. And I made some good relationships there of other people that were, uh, I think I was the only one actually paying rent. I think everybody (laughs) else was technically squatting. But I, I spent about a year and a half there and that got me set up enough that I was able to build out a facility. And then I built out a room in Hollywood. And then I was in that high room for five years and then I split out of there and I've been working out of a home studio since then. So you're talking to me out of your studio, which is a home studio? Yep. I'm in a building behind my house. So we have a place up in the hills and we have a, I have a two-story building behind it. So I have a studio and a machine room here on the first floor. And then the second floor is my office and a bathroom and a shop. So we're kind of self-contained. The lathe room is actually in the house proper because the lathe weighs almost three quarters of a ton and we just physically could not get it up here without a lot of expense and probably ripping down some of the fencing and rearranging our front yard, as it were. So wow, we converted an old storeroom on the first floor, which had a street entrance, thankfully. So the lathe room is down there. So tell me about the place you have. Was that built after the fact? In other words, did you buy the house and then build this building or was the building pre-existing? No, the building was pre-existing. It was originally the garage for the built for the house. Mm. And over the years, the house was built in the 50s. And over the years, as happens in LA, houses get almost every house. I always joke with my wife, like, does anybody move into a house and not got job renovated anymore? Because <laughs> everything seems to get stripped back to the studs the second somebody buys it. And this one had used to have a garage. Now it's all house out to the street, but it used to have a big driveway that swept up across the house. And this was actually the garage. And in 1990 or so, they added the second story and COA'd it out for an office, a home office. I've been in a few home studios. This one's actually totally legal. <laughs> So, oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. What I can't do is rent it out as an apartment, but I can use it as a studio. So, and it's worked out well. The studio is just the right size. This is my second studio in a house. And the first studio, when I went to the first studio house, it was a rental. And I connected with Glenn Kuras at GIK and he did all my acoustic treatment. And because he did that there as freestanding, I was able to come up to this building, build the room back down to the same dimension, and then drop all the sound treatment in. And it worked. Oh, that's great. So many advantages. And I hate the term home studio because it sounds, I think to some of us of a particular age, we kind of go, oh, it's a home home studio. It took me a while to admit it myself. I won't lie. It took me, it seems like a pejorative, but in LA, the progression is sort of like you start off at a gritty studio, then you become an assistant at like a decent studio and try to work yourself up to like a, be a, the top assistant at like a good studio. Then you start doing indie gigs and then you build a studio at your house. LA is so cumbersome to travel. So it really is beneficial here. It certainly is. And many financial reasons why you're not paying rent per se, and you're not going to get the rent jacked up. And there's so many stresses that go away. Now, how do you feel about 
do you have it set up to where you you're comfortable with clients coming by? Yeah. To be honest, that's one of the reasons that it's been easy to transition is clients almost never come by. Mm. But I don't think I've advertised in probably 10 years. So I don't get a lot of people. If I'm working with somebody at this point, chances are I've been working with them for a long time. So I have a good relationship with most of my clients already. It's pretty infrequent that, and because of that, I'm very comfortable having them come up. They're also very comfortable not coming in at all. I generally am getting probably one or two attended sessions like a month at this point. Okay. I had two this week, but that was a rare week. Okay. And today's a Friday. So, but yeah, that's what people come in more often for now is discounting because that's a little more visual process and a little more interesting to look in it. People that have worked with me for a while have stared at the back of my head for enough hours from my couch. So they don't need to see that anymore. Yeah. But watching me cut a record is kind of fun. So for me too, actually. So it's all fine. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I'd like to ask you some overarching questions about business and money and how it all pertains to the world of audio. Do you have an overarching philosophy about money and how you handle it? And I always, in past episodes, I've talked endlessly with people about they spend all their time and money on gear. You know, they get fascinated by a piece of gear and then they get it and then they end up selling it. And then sometimes debt piles up, sometimes it doesn't. What are your thoughts on money and how to handle it in the world of audio? Well, for the gear question, I have to say I spent like the first 10 or 12 years of my career adding gear and wanting and wanting and wanting more colors and more options and more things. I spent the last 15 years of my career getting rid of it. I will very frequently just be like, okay, this piece of gear that I've used every day for the last 20 years, get it out of here. I have no problem letting go of stuff. The bottom line is this point, so many things are in the box. Plugins are so powerful. If I'm going to an analog piece of gear, it's because I want something uniquely analog about it. It's the tubes or it's the discrete amps or it's the transformers or that's what I'm going there for. If I'm going for an analog piece of gear because it's super, super clean, well, I can do that in the box and it's probably more effectively achieved in this day and age. So I tend not to spend a lot of money on gear. And I've definitely had a couple times in my life where I've spent a huge chunk of money on gear because we did it. When we started Threshold, we bought out all the Sony gear, I think. They probably don't want me sharing what we spent, but it was a lot. It was seven digits into that to that number. And when I left in 2006, 2007 and started Marsh Mastering, it was a six-figure number. The challenge is when you have, I think with money, it's easy to get to a point after you've been doing this for a number of years where your stuff is basically paid off. And that's where you get into trouble. I think where some people are like, you know, everything's paid off. I can afford to buy another one of these, or I can afford to splurge or this luxury. 
But this business is really up and down. And I've always said you have to store your nuts for the winter because you never know when you're going to hit a month where all of a sudden nobody's doing anything or budgets got tight or they ran out and they're waiting for more money to come in next quarter or something. So it's an ebb and a flow to it. And my goal has always been to do more, better work with fewer clients. So that means that I will sometimes go through dry spells where I may not work for a day and a half or two days or three days or something. But during that time, I'm working on, I'm doing other things. That's when I'll go back to a project that has been lingering and I'll be like, you know what? I just figured this out about that because I'm no longer intensely thinking about it. I'm thinking about it passively. Or I'll work on, I do a lot of like tape machine work, tech work. I'm always trying to find better ways to do things. So we're always, with the lathe, we're always redeveloping and upgrading and updating that. There's other things that I do to distract me where I'm not just sitting in it. I don't think I could do a job where I just sit in a chair and just EQ music to digital all day long. That wouldn't do it for me. People have different approaches. I know some people get like ruthless with the money. For me, I try to, my billing philosophy is let the punishment fit the crime. If it's something that I'm able to accomplish pretty effectively and it's well within the scope of what I normally do on an average day, it's not going to cost a billion dollars. If you want me to jump through a lot of hoops and it's something crazy, then it's probably going to be more money. But we're going to go into that with full knowledge and you're going to understand what the cost of value proposition is as we go into it. But my goal is, you know, getting back to what we talked about earlier, it's value. I want to provide maximum value for my clients. Even if I get them a bill that's insanely high, I want them to feel like they got off cheap. And that's my job. That's on me. I have to do that. And that's so that's my take on money is like, if you feel like you're worth it, charge it and then go earn it. All those boxes have to be ticked for it to really work for you and the artist. Now, you're a, you're a one-man show, right? I work with an assistant. I have a couple right now, Justin and Anthony, who's sitting next to me here. But yeah, for the most part, I'm a one-man show. I envy people that have a booker or a traffic manager or a manager or somebody that sort of coordinates their jobs. That was actually what kind of caused me to leave my prior company was when they wanted to give me one of those. They saw it as a good thing and I saw it as a bad thing. My theory is that no one is better equipped to to assess the needs and understand my clients than I am. And I don't want to filter between them and me. So unfortunately, that means I have to discuss money with the same people that I discuss creative stuff with. And that's a challenge. It's not easy. And it's weird. Again, it's I've always worked that way. And only in the last maybe 10 years have I begun to understand like, wow, I really, it sucks when I have to talk money with people I just spent the whole day being creative with. But you learn a way, you learn, you figure it out and you learn a way to negotiate it so that you don't feel uncomfortable and you don't make them feel uncomfortable. I mean, because that's so important for an artist. I mean, it's like you look at most pictures of a mastering room, they all look cool. It's because it's like, I equate it to like a birthing room. You know, like we give birth to people's children here and people need to feel calm and relaxed and comfortable. They don't want to do, you know, nobody wants to be in like a white, clean hospital room to do it at the end of the day. That's my thing. So yeah, I've always worked directly with my clients and I'm very envious of people that can just sort of like, oh, yep, go do the, I've had people that have done my invoicing and things like that in the past, but in terms of negotiating rates and establishing all that stuff, I've always done it myself. And I also publish my rates. I know a lot of people refuse to, but unless you're going to come in for an hourly session that, you know, if you're going to do an attended session, it's hourly and it depends on how long we take. I can give a ballpark of that, but if it's going to be over the internet, all my rates are right online. Anybody can go read them and compare them to anybody else's. And I generally find that that tends to just sort of have the conversation for me. Yeah. And if people can assess my value, what value I represent to them on their own terms, they don't have to have me. I'm not a sales guy. I don't, I've never been able to get on the phone and like convince somebody that they need to work with me over anybody else because I'm better or superior. I 
think my results speak for themselves. They always have for 25 years and people have found me. So I, I generally tend to work that way. I'd rather pull people towards what I do because they appreciate what it is than push myself on people and try to have them change so that they can work with me. Now, I said I didn't want to talk about gear, but I do want to ask you about the tools you use to manage the workflow as far as how do you handle clients? Do you just deal in email? Is there a CRM software involved? And invoicing, like what, what are those kind of office type tools you use? In an ideal world, I would get something more comprehensive. I'm pretty old school. I'm, I'm just sort of one step above spiral ring binder. <laughs> That's unfortunately, I use QuickBooks for invoicing and most of the invoices happen after the fact. So sometimes we'll be doing invoicing and it's invoices from like two months ago, just getting them into the system. My accountant loves me. Nothing ever matches up. <laughs> but yeah, so we'd use that for invoicing. Clients contact me every which way but loose. Email, Messenger, WhatsApp, Instagram. I get a lot of work through Instagram for whatever reason. So I have to be prepared to receive input and to have exchanges. So I have generally like three or four, I'm constantly checking social media all day long. Not because I like want to know what so-and-so had for lunch or what so-and-so thinks about the news. It's because people contact me constantly through those means. I would love to have some kind of all-encompassing CRM thing where I don't have to keep it all in my head because that's where it is right now. But that's probably also why I've been loath to give up any kind of control or power because it is all up in my head. If I work with a client 20 years ago, I probably know what I did with them and I can remember elements about the project that will inform what I'll do next time or disinform based on what the new information they give me. Because hmm. I'm always, you're always reading your clients, everything your clients say, you're always reading it like tea leaves, whether you're talking about the weather or anything else, like there are knowledgeable bits to gain. There's good knowledge to gain from your clients in every way, shape or form to give you a better understanding of how they view things and what their understanding of the world is and what their understanding of music or sonics or a gear or whatever the subject may be. You can always glean stuff from your clients that will be valuable moving forward as you try to work with their music. How do you handle the balance of work and life with your wife? Do you have kids? I have one kid, Leo, who's almost six. And I guess to answer your question bluntly, sometimes well, sometimes not well. It can be a challenge. Luckily, my wife is in the TV business, so she, she understands. And she knows that it's a strike while the iron's hot kind of thing. That was one of the keys to having the studio here at the house. And we also have, we have a house in Virginia as well. And I have a studio there. And that was part of the, my proposition to my wife was like, if we're going to have a, a vacation home, I have to be able to work because the instant that my feet hit the airport, my phone will ring. Just works out that way. I don't know why, but. So you guys have a, you got, you have a vacation house in Virginia with a studio in it. Is it set up in the exact same way as the, the main studio? No, it's different. It's similar enough that I understand what's going on there. Mm. Um, I have PMC monitors in here. I have ATC monitors there. Most of the gear is the same. I keep rebuilding my console everywhere I go because it's, it's sort of part and parcel to what I do. So I have one there, one here, and one in the lathe room. But yeah, it's, it's hard. The one thing that's great about the studio being at the house is that 10 minutes of work is actually 10 minutes of work. And that was the most frustrating thing about having a commercial facility is in LA, it takes at least a half an hour to get bloody anywhere. So if you've got to go do a job, even if it's, oh, there's a song. Oh, we forgot. There's one, there's one swear word, like in the first five seconds of the song, we totally forgot it when we did the clean edit. We're going to send you a new mix. There's seven versions to do. Hmm. Okay. So that won't take me long to do, but I've got a recall. I can go back to the studio, pull the recall up and run the versions. And if I'm here, you know, seven versions that might take 30 minutes to run them all, maybe 25 minutes. But if I have to get up, take a shower, get dressed, drive to the studio, go to the studio, power everything up, throw the computers on, download the audio, load it in, do all that stuff, 
process it, upload it, wait for finish uploading, shut everything down, close the studio, drive back home. Now I've spent two hours doing 25 minutes worth of work. That's when work-life balance gets all out of whack. It's like, I can't do that. So I've found ways to make my work process and workflow more efficient. And that allows me enough freedom to be able to seem like I have am really good at having a work, good work-life balance when really it's just, I found ways to do more with less time. My computer software, we went from an older, sort of more antiquated system called Soundblade to a new Pyramix software, which is very advanced and very complicated. And it took me months to learn how to use it. But now that I do know how to use it, it shaves probably an hour or two hours off every single album that I do. And that's time savings that I use to spend time with my son when he comes and knocks on the door when he gets home from school and wants to spend 10 minutes talking to me about his day. Like I can stop for 10 minutes and I can talk to him about his day. And that re-energizes me to then come back to the console and give my best to my clients. So it all feeds into itself. But yeah, I found ways, a lot of ways to try to work more efficiently with, especially with my time. And that has allowed me to sort of at least present the image that I have a really good work-life balance. <laughs> some, sometimes I'm in here till midnight, just like everybody else. Yeah. And, so, and then you're back at 6 a.m. and banging away again. So if uh, people want to check up on you on the internet, it's marshmastering.com? Yeah, marshmastering.com. I'm on Instagram is stephosonic, steph with a ph, stephosonic. And Facebook, Master Marsh, I think is on Facebook. Okay. I'll put a link in the show notes for everybody to check that out. And feel free to reach out, Stefan, if you have a project you would like him to tackle. Anything else that we may have skipped over that uh, you wanted to address or discuss? No. No, I think uh, I had a really good time talking with you, Matt. It was, uh, it was a real pleasure, and I love the questions that you ask. It's sort of not the standard name, rank, serial number kind of stuff. So <laughs> I, I always... I always look forward to Working Class Audio Podcast. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor for me. I appreciate your time. Well, that's it. So once again, check out the show notes, everybody listening. And Stefan, thank you again. Thanks. All right, take care. Stefan Marsh here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to thank everybody that helped out with the show, including Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith for bringing me in with the great announcer's voice. He, what a great voice that guy has. Anyhow, connect with me on LinkedIn, as always, and uh, send me a message if you'd like. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, 
you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 